How's everybody doing? All right. What's that? One of the Star Trek shows, one of the captains says, buckle up, right? I don't know which one it is, but I feel like saying buckle up. Uh, get ready for... So uh, uh, some sermons are more application-oriented and some are more explanation-oriented. This is definitely the latter, although there will be application. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Last week... In verses 1 through 19, uh, we looked at Daniel's prayer for his people. And today, we come to the next set of verses, 20 through 27. Here we find not only Daniel's answer to his prayer, but uh, much, much more. The answer comes in in the form of a vision from the angel Gabriel, who we first met in chapter 8, if you remember. Now, this vision in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, is different from those we've seen in chapters 7 and 8. No beasts, uh, rams, no goats, just words from Gabriel, uh, more of an auditory vision, explanation even, to Daniel. But like the previous visions, it too is filled with mysterious images and numbers, like a mathematical puzzle challenging us to figure it out. Unfortunately, I have a degree in mathematics, so you're in good hands here. No, just kidding. Actually, it doesn't help at all. That might prove a little difficult, figuring this out. And so we're going we're gonna to approach this passage, I'm going to approach it, with a lot of humility. I want you to know that this is one of, if not the, most difficult and debated passages in the Bible. Today, that's where we're at. In 400 AD, commenting on this passage, the brilliant scholar, linguist, and church father Jerome wrote, because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above another, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the readers to judge as to whose explanation ought to be followed. He then listed nine conflicting opinions on the meaning of this passage, declaring himself unable to decide which one, if any, was correct. Now, I'm not going to give you nine conflicting opinions. I don't think that would be helpful. I will point out that the ESV Study Bible, I'm sure there are other sources, this one was just one I looked at, does a pretty good job of summarizing the various interpretations of this passage. And we'll look at a few uh, today. But my goal is to focus as much as possible on what is clear over what is complex. Remember what Paul wrote to the church in Rome applies to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. For whatever was written in former days... He's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, of which Daniel is a part, was written for our instruction. There are clear lessons for us in this passage, and I hopefully will point them out to you, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's going to take some humility and endurance and a willingness to think. There's no, you know, if you start resting here, you're going to miss it. But I believe this passage offers instruction, encouragement, and hope. In fact, I believe the purpose of this vision was to give Daniel 
and his people in exile. Remember, uh, Daniel is in exile. He's been captive. Nebuchadnezzar took him and others captive, dispersed the Jewish people to various places. This is written to give them hope in their exile. And therefore, we too can find hope in these difficult eight verses of the Bible. But we need God's help, so would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come to you as we face this difficult passage, but it's a passage you inspired, and we trust you. We turn to you, we look to you uh, to speak to us through it, through your word. Whatever, Lord, here is of me, Lord, cast that aside. But what is of you, Father? Help it to penetrate our minds and our hearts that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ through your word. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Now, the first thing we must remind ourselves of is the context of this vision. Beginning in verse 20, Daniel writes, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the uh, holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the, previous, in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. The vision that follows comes in answer to Daniel's prayer in verses 4 through 19. That's what we looked at last week. We'll touch on it, but it would be good to have that as a background. In fact, Daniel's praying... And Gabriel flies in and interrupts him to give him this vision. So what was Daniel praying for? Well, if you remember from last week, his prayer takes place shortly after the Babylonians were defeated by Cyrus of Persia. So the Babylonians are out. Persians are in. This is around 539 B.C. This changing of the guard prompts Daniel to read the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah where he finds a two-part prophecy. First, the children of Israel, because of their sin, will experience a 70-year period of exile in Babylon. And they're in the midst of that right now. Actually, they're at the tail end of that right now, as Daniel writes. After which, God would judge the Babylonians. Or at the end, God would judge the Babylonians. And second, second part of the prophecy, God would return his people to their land to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So right now, as Daniel gets the vision, no temple in Jerusalem. Daniel saw the first part of the prophecy being fulfilled. Through Cyrus, the Babylonians were being judged by God. So he's prompted to accelerate his prayer that God would now fulfill the second part as well. Along with adoration for God, if you remember from last week, and confession of his sins and the sins of his people, Daniel makes supplication before God. Based on the promises of God's word and by his great power and mercy and grace, Daniel asks that God would restore his people to their land, that they might rebuild the temple, that they might continue in worshiping the Lord. He asked for this, not based on uh, the people's righteousness, but based on God's holy name. His last words, before he's interrupted by Gabriel, are recorded in verse 19. He prays, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel prayed, Lord, hear me. Uh, pay attention. 
act, delay not. And that's when Gabriel appears. And in verse 22, we read of chapter 9, He, Gabriel, made me, Daniel, understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Gabriel's goal is not to confuse Daniel, but to give him insight, to give him understanding about what Daniel has just been praying. Verse 23, Gabriel continues, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So we'll get to the vision shortly. Gabriel tells Daniel that he's greatly loved by God. So much so that when he began to pray, a word went out uh, from the throne of God, and Gabriel was sent in response to that word because of Daniel's prayer and God's love. This should clearly say something to us. Daniel's prayer caused an immediate response from God. Why? Because God loved Daniel. And I don't think it's a stretch to apply this to all God's children, all those he loves. We have the privilege and the responsibility of coming to God with our adoration, our confession, our supplication. James tells us to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Now, as we draw near to God in prayer, we probably won't get uh, an angel flying, swooping in, giving us a, a vision, but in love, we'll get something better. God will draw near to us. His Spirit will speak to us, to our hearts and our minds. He will guide us. He will direct us. He'll give us wisdom and comfort and peace. We need to get this. Because all too often in times of difficulty, instead of drawing near to God in prayer as Daniel did, we either sit in our own despair lamenting uh, that nothing can be done, or we turn to our own efforts. Instead of placing our hope in God who loves us, we place our hope in ourselves. What can I do to fix this? But Daniel chapter 9 challenges us to face difficulty trials, even our own sin, by getting on our knees, coming to the Lord, and pleading with Him to enter our circumstances, to deal with our sin, to comfort us in our mourning, to empower us to fight against the evil in this world, to empower us to be His representatives in this world. So even if this vision that follows is confusing to us, we already have a clear application that God hears and answers the prayers of those he loves. We now turn to the vision itself. Remembering the context, Daniel's prayer for the return of his people and restoration of the temple, of the city. And interestingly, the first thing Gabriel does is give Daniel the consummation of the vision. Daniel's praying for the return of his people, restoration of Jerusalem, the holy city, and Gabriel begins by telling him, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So what you're praying about, uh, we got 70 weeks to deal with. 70 weeks are decreed. So what Gabriel uh, will reveal in this vision will take place over a period of 70 weeks, or uh, 77s as the title of the message indicates. The Hebrew word weeks, shabu'an, can also mean sevens. 
And most Bible scholars take it to mean sevens. The question is, are these 77s literal or figurative? Here, scholars are divided. Many take it literally. They, they believe 77s mean 70 periods of seven years each, or doing the math, how many years? 490. Thank you, Sean. And you don't even have a math degree, do you? No, I'm just kidding. No. Oh, well, thanks. Then, after they, the, the literal, after they give various beginning and endings that correspond with the literal interpretation of this 490 years. But I've come to see these numbers as more figurative than literal. Daniel's praying because the prophecy in Jeremiah, because of the prophecy in Jeremiah, if you remember from last week, that Israel would be restored after a period of 70 years of captivity. And in response, God, through Gabriel, says, I'm not just going to tell you what will happen at the end of 70 years, but 70 times 70 years or periods of time. I think this is like Jesus' answers to Peter's uh, question in Matthew 18. Peter asked, Lord, how often shall my, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. No one believes that Jesus was literally saying, okay, Peter, keep count of the times you forgive because you're required to forgive exactly 70 times seven, 490 times. But if they mess up again, you don't have to forgive that 491st time. We all understand that Jesus was teaching Peter and us that forgiveness is much more than we can conceive of. And I think the same thing is true here in Daniel. Daniel's praying about what will happen at the end of uh, the 70-year exile. And Gabriel is saying there's much more to consider here. 70 times 7 more, or uh, actually infinitely more. Also, the idea of counting sevens would not have been uh, new to Daniel. It's part of the law found in Leviticus chapter 25. I've included in your notes, if you have notes, I've included a couple scriptures. We're not going to look at them. They're sort of for you to look back at, including Leviticus 25. This describes uh, the, the sevens. The Israelites would count seven years so that they knew, so this is when they're in the land, they're going to count seven years so that they knew when to give the land a Sabbath rest. And they were to count seven sevens of years, seven times seven, or 49 years, so that they would know uh, when the year of Jubilee arrived. That would be the 50th year, actually. Seven, the, the, yeah. The year of Jubilee was a time of release and freedom, of celebrating, of restoration. So Daniel uh, would have most certainly associated 77s with this year of Jubilee. In just a few short years, at the end of the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah, we're probably four years or so from that, where Daniel's getting this vision, the Israelites would return to Jerusalem, and so freedom and restoration were close at hand. But freedom and restoration were in the distance as well. In seven sevens, if seven sevens would lead to the year of Jubilee, Leviticus, then 70 sevens would lead to a tenfold Jubilee. I think that's what we have in Daniel. A time of unprecedented and glorious mercy and forgiveness. That's what we find 
in the rest of verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Transgression, sin, and wickedness on the part of God's people had led to their judgment. That's why they're in exile at the time of the writing of this. But the day would come in 77s when these things would end. No more transgressions or sins. They would be replaced by eternal righteousness. How would this happen? By a work of atonement for iniquity. Atone here is the Hebrew word kapar. It means to cover, to cancel, to cleanse, purge. It should be noted that according to the Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee was celebrated. The main celebration day was on the Day of Atonement. The one day every year, year after year, that the Jewish priests performed sacrificial rites for the atonement of the sins of the people. But Gabriel is saying that one day, in 77's iniquity, sin will be atoned for, canceled, purged, cleansed permanently. One day, God's sinful people would be permanently justified, declared righteous before God. And we know when this took place. We know it took place through Jesus Christ. Sins were canceled and were cleansed through the finished atoning work of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Romans, more than that, we, are, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation or atonement. And along with atonement, instead of the past neglect of the words of the prophets by his people, the Lord would seal both vision and profit. We're continuing in Daniel 24. Not that God would hide them or keep them secret. Rather, He would put His seal of approval by fulfilling the words of the prophet. Just as a document might be sealed with a mark by its owner. And finally, a most holy place will be anointed. That word place can also be translated one. To anoint a most holy one. And when we get to verse 25, we'll see the coming of the anointed one or the Messiah. So I tend to think uh, this too is speaking of the anointed one, the Messiah. So in summary, verse 24, as the prophets declared, the most holy one will be anointed to atone for the sins of his people and to bring everlasting righteousness. That's the consummation of these 77s. And that's clear. That's through Jesus Christ. should also be noted that, that the things that, which Gabriel promised in verse 24 were the new covenant realities that other prophets had prophesied about. In Jeremiah 31-33, which Daniel would have been familiar with, we read, For this is the covenant that I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, maybe 77s, after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God speaking to his people, we read, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Other prophets had spoken of the reality of this new covenant. 
And here Gabriel is revealing it's coming to Daniel. Daniel was praying for the physical restoration uh, of his people to their land. And his prayers were ans- will, will be answered shortly. From his perspective, we're talking, the Persian king Cyrus would decree that the Israelites could return to their land. So they had been captive to Babylon. Cyrus comes in, he takes care of Babylon, fulfilling that prophecy of Jeremiah. And then, not too many days from then, he's going to decree, okay, now you can return to your land. Answer to Daniel's prayer. But they needed more than their captivity removed. Captivity reversed. They needed their sin atoned for. They needed righteousness. They needed the law written within them. They needed God to provide them with a new heart. They needed a permanent work of atonement for their sins. They needed Jesus Christ and the new covenant sealed with his blood. Jesus would be a deliverer much greater than Cyrus. And he would accomplish a restoration from captivity deeper than physical exile. Jesus would deliver sinners from spiritual exile, from the captivity of sin and death. Whether, uh, just so we're clear here, whether a literal 490 years or a figurative period of ultimate completion, Jesus came to fulfill the jubilee anticipated by 77s. And this was meant to give Daniel and his people hope, hope beyond hope. Daniel, it's more than you're asking for. Hope beyond the reestablishment of Israel, which would end, by the way. Hope for the atonement, the end of sin, and the coming of eternal righteousness. And even though Christ's defeat of sin and offer of eternal righteousness through his atoning sacrifice is in our past, it continues to give us hope that one day we too will experience the fullness of what was foretold in Daniel chapter 24. There is a consummation for us as well. One day, when we see our Savior's face, we'll we'll fully experience the eternal righteousness He provides. So in times of trouble, in times of defeat, hope in the promises of sin's complete death and righteousness's eternal reign. Amen? Now, part of me would like to stop right there and dismiss you, okay? Moving on to chapter 10 next week. But Gabriel didn't do that, so we won't. This is why I think expository through the Bible teaching is so important. Because if I could just jump from topic to topic or passage to passage, I would never land in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Especially 25 through 27, which is coming next. But we're here, so let's go for it, okay? We've seen the consummation of the vision, now we turn to the components of the vision. I was able to do all C's on this, just so you know. Wow, that's pretty, pretty amazing. All right. You know, I think I wore a sweater prematurely here. It's it's hot in here. These lights are... Anyway, so we have the overall 70 weeks of sevens, 77s, literal or figurative. That's the time frame for the consummation of the vision recorded in verse 24. But then in verses 25 through 27, we discover that this vision has several components. 
several things that take place during the 77s. The first of which includes the coming of the anointed one. He's been hinted at in 24. Now we're gonna, he's going to plop right down. After announcing that God would accomplish what God would accomplish over 77s, including the anointing of the most holy place, I believe holy one, Gabriel breaks it down for us. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. Okay, now if you have an ESV, uh, if you have an electronic version, you can click on the footnote, but if you have an ESV, it has the footnote. We're using the ESV here, and it's, the footnote says, or there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it shall be built again. In most translations and in most interpretations, the seven sevens and the 62 sevens are added together. That's what we see in the NASB. Uh, The NASB says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, Messiah means anointed one, and prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So seven sevens and 62 sevens equals 69 sevens. Good. That's elementary math, so I was hoping you all could do that. All but one of the sevens. Remember, we started with seven, T, 77. Now we, all but one of the sevens leads to the coming of the anointed one. Now the beginning of the first seven is fixed at the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that hadn't taken place yet when Daniel's given this vision. Again, there's much debate about who issued the decree and when it was issued. Some believe it was a heavenly decree issued by God. Others, like myself, believe it was the first decree for the Israelites to return to their land issued by Cyrus the Persian in approximately 538 B.C. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. While still others, who hold to the literal view of the 490 years... And, and I think probably need to fit these events in that 490 years time frame, believe Gabriel is referring to the second degree decree given to Ezra uh, to return to Jerusalem by Artaxerxes in 547 B.C., as seen in Ezra chapter 7, verses, 7, verses 11 through 26, which is also in your notes. You can look at that if you want. We're not going to look at Ezra but it's, again, it's in your notes. Also, you might ask, uh, if, it, if, it, if it's going to be 69 weeks, literal or figurative, why divide them into 7 and 62? Why, why do you make us do the math? Well, the best exclamation I found was that the first seven sevens, a short period of time, whether literal or figurative, refers to the era that encompasses uh, the return of the Israelites from exile, rebuilding their temple, rebuilding their city Jerusalem. This was the specific answer. The seven sevens is the specific answer to Daniel's prayer in verses 1 through 19. 
And then of primary importance is the seven plus 62. So after those seven, there's 62 more. So 69 weeks later, 69 sevens, until the coming of the anointed one. Don't get lost in the weeds here, okay? In this, we got bushels of seven weeds each. No, just kidding. Don't get lost. Don't miss the main point. This is clear. The anointed one, which is the Hebrew word Messiah, is coming. That's what Gabriel's saying. Also notice that Gabriel calls the anointed one a prince. He's anointed by God to be the ruler of his people. This will be important when we get to verses 26 and 27 and that final week. So the promise in Daniel 24 would be accomplished by the coming of the anointed one in Daniel 9.25. This was even better news than Daniel had prayed for. Remember, he was praying for the restoration of his people and his temple. But not only would the temple be rebuilt... But the Messiah, the true temple, would come. In Revelation 21, 22, we read, And I saw no temple, this is a heavenly view, in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Yes, there will be an earthly temple. In fact, there will be two. Okay, just so we're clear. Where God's people could worship. But for all eternity... God himself will be the temple. So the main point here, don't miss it, is the good news that the anointed prince of God is coming. And he'll put an end to sin through his atoning work. That's the hope. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But Daniel 9.25 also contains some bad news. Verse 25 goes, 25 goes on to say, It, Jerusalem, shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Jerusalem would be rebuilt, but it wouldn't be easy. Read Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 to see the difficulties that Nehemiah faced in rebuilding the walls. He had opposition from outside, from inside. Yet despite all the difficulty, the walls were finished in 52 days. But, that would, but what would follow would not be good either. These 62 weeks after the restoration of the city, before the coming of the Messiah, are filled with trouble. Trouble from the Greek Empire. Specifically, a guy that we've talked about, if you remember his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. We looked at him in chapter 8. And then the Roman Empire would also cause much trouble. So this, is, this period of 62 weeks is the Greeks and then the Roman Empire after the Persian Empire. The Persians were kind of cool. They said, go back to your land. We're releasing you. And then the Greeks come and sort of mess stuff up. It's as if Gabriel is saying to Daniel, yes, your prayers will be answered, but it will take more than the return of your people and the rebuilding of Jerusalem to do away with your trouble. That will only come through the anointed one, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And even the coming of the Messiah will not immediately put an end to the trouble. That's the second component, the cutting off of the anointed one. So in the short term, the people return, the temple, the city are restored. This did happen. And in the long term, the anointed one comes. And with him comes the end of transgression, sin. He atones for iniquity. He brings in everlasting righteousness. And this too 
occurred in Christ. And how did he do this? How would this anointed one work? Will he, by the sword, rise up and conquer the enemies of God's people? Well, despite this prophecy and others, that's what Israel thought. That's what they were waiting for. Up until the the time of Christ's coming, they were expecting a conquering warrior Messiah like King David. But the anointed one would accomplish the atonement in a much different way. Verse 26, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. After Messiah has come, the next event in Gabriel's vision is his cutting off. To be cut off is the language of rejection, of being cursed. This is clearly a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. At the crucifixion, by his death, Jesus Christ atoned for and put an end to sins. He provided for all who would trust in him everlasting righteousness. But there was a great cost. He was cut off. He was cut off from life. He died physically. And more importantly, he was cut off spiritually. Because of our sins that he atoned for, he was forsaken by his Father in heaven. He received the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve. From the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was rejected. He was cursed. He was cut off. He had nothing. In the letter to the church in Galatia, Paul teaches that Christ bore the curse of the law in our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed for you and me. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Now, I'm not sure how Daniel, how much Daniel understood about this cutting off of the anointed one. But for us, we have the full description, the full depiction of this in, all, in the four Gospels. We can see that the cutting off of Jesus Christ through his death in our place was the greatest act of love in all human history. And that love continues to this very day. As a child of God, we're loved by the one who suffered and died for us. And knowing his great love, his atoning sacrifice for you and me was planned not only hundreds of years before when Daniel heard about it, but from the foundations of the world. This should certainly give us hope and encouragement and strength when we face difficulties, when we face suffering, when we face pain in this life. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be cut off, cut off from the Father. And He's there with us to give us strength and encouragement and comfort as we draw near to Him, facing the difficulties of this world. That's clear. That's not complex. Amen? But now it gets tough, okay? What's gone before, whether the sevens are taken literally or figuratively, pretty much leads to the same place. To Christ being cut off to His atoning sacrificial death on the cross. And this, I believe, is the central focus of what, what we can hold on to, knowing what Christ has done for you and for me. But Gabriel adds more. Third component is the crushing of, the temp- of Jerusalem and the temple. What's before us, the last two verses, 26 and 27, the passage is one of the most difficult. These two are the most difficult in the passage. The most difficult verses maybe in the Bible. 
And before we get to the text, we need to understand a major difference in interpreting these verses, okay? There are different vari- several different variations, but, but they, they kind of break down into two main views. And these views hinge on whether you believe the one remaining week, remember we've 69 weeks taken care of, they've led up to Christ. This one week, uh, when you believe this one remaining week will take place. The first 69, literal or figurative, are somewhat straightforward. But it's this final week where things get complex. The first view of the two is that the final week is a reference to events surrounding and following the first coming of Christ. That the vision Daniel receives culminates in Christ's crucifixion being cut off, And the final week refers to events related to Daniel's people, the Jews, following Christ's crucifixion, including the destruction of the second temple built under the leadership of Zerubbabel by those who returned from the exile. Just so we're clear about the temple. So so, uh, the children of Israel come into the land, and they're there for a number of years. David's the king. He wants to build the temple. God says, no can do. Solomon builds the temple, okay? The first temple is built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. Then the kingdoms divide and stuff happens. Uh, Eventually, Judah is taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroys that first temple. The people are in captivity for 70 years. They come back to the land, and led by Zerubbabel, they build the temple a second time. Side note, it's renovated sort of by Herod, so it becomes Herod's great temple. And then that temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. by uh, a Roman guy named Titus. So currently in Israel, Jerusalem, there is no temple. Okay? Two temples. The second view is that this final week refers to events in the future, in our future. Events that will take place around the second coming of Christ. And also focus on Daniel's people, the Jews. In this view, there's what's called the great parenthesis. Parenthesis. Parentheses? Is that good enough? Okay, I'm not going to say it again. That is, between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel's vision, there's an unspecified amount of time. During this time, which we're now living in, according to this view, the history of the church plays itself out. This is the church. What? I said, don't disturb. Okay, sorry. Maybe Siri was going to explain the whole thing to us. I don't know. Anyway, uh, where was I? Unspecified time. During this time, church, it's sort of the church age, they would say, after which the Antichrist will come and destroy Jerusalem and the third temple, okay? A temple, uh, for this to take place, a temple, another temple has to be rebuilt, rebuilt, Uh, There is no temple today, so sometime between now and this fulfillment, a a new temple will have to be rebuilt. This final view is commonly thought to happen during what is called the tribulation, seven literal years of hell on earth. Now, we need to recognize three things. First, both of these views, uh, well, maybe four things. First, they're very different. Maybe that's the third one. No. Yeah. Yeah. But both of these views are held by people who love the Lord and take the prophecy of Daniel seriously, believe that this is the 
Bible is the inspired Word of God, okay? Second, these verses are difficult to interpret. And third, both of these views cannot be right, okay? They're sort of mutually exclusive. So in humility, we need to ask, which view has the stronger claim to be right? And how do we decide between them? Well, as I read and studied and prayed, and as I considered the context, and what was big to me is, uh, I, I, I think, understanding what, what, is Daniel, what is Daniel hearing in this vision, since it was given for him to understand and not confuse him. What would have this vision meant to Daniel? I came to the understanding that the first option is a better option. That this final week is the reference to events that take place shortly after Christ's death and resurrection and involves the destruction of the second temple. So I'm going to humbly approach what follows from that perspective. That this vision was fulfilled historically shortly after the crucifixion of Christ. Okay? Now to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay, we got that. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we know who the anointed one is, but who's the prince and his people, who from Daniel's perspective is to come. Even with those who believe these events all take, take place following the crucifixion, there's debate about this. Some believe that the people are the armies of Titus, and Titus is the prince who destroyed Jerusalem and the second temple in 70 AD. However, it seems more plausible in context that the reference to the anointed one and the prince in verse 26 points back to the coming anointed prince of verse 25. Therefore, I would say that the prince is Jesus himself. And the people who destroy Jerusalem are the Jews of his day. Their rejection of Christ led to the destruction of their own city and sanctuary and temple. The Jewish wars from, uh, with Rome in, from 66 to 70 AD resulted in devastation on the city and the destruction of the second temple by Titus. Now, I'll mention that the other view, the one with the parentheses, the future view, draws a totally opposite conclusion from this. Instead of the prince being Jesus... They say despite the prince in verse 25 being Jesus, the prince in verse 26 is the Antichrist. We're not going to dive deeper into that. Time constraints uh, and, yeah, it would just take too much. But I just wanted you to be aware of how divergent these two views are. Gabriel goes on to promise, it's the city and the sanctuary, in shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, destruction, Desolations are decreed. God had promised a future destruction, the future destruction of the second temple. And it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The temple once again faced desolation. Warfare could precede it, would precede it, and judgment was decreed. So I believe verse 26 is about the atoning work of the Messiah and the judgment upon Jerusalem and its second temple. We should note that Jesus himself spoke of his future atoning work, his cut being cut off, as well as the future judgment that would come upon the second temple. 
In Mark 13, 2, Jesus said, do, no, back up, back up, back up. In Mark 10, 45, he said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Instead of the temple sacrificial system, I will give myself, my life as a ransom, an atoning sacrifice for many. For all who trust in me. And in Mark 13, 2, Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings, the second temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The second temple that Daniel prays for and is restored will be destroyed. So Daniel's prayers took place, but then later they were sort of wiped out. And in Mark 15, 38, we read the results of Jesus' death on the cross with regards to the temple. And the curtain of the temple, the curtain that that led into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God descended, was torn in two from top to bottom. The tearing of the curtain, by the way, signaled that the purpose of the temple had come to an end. Even before it was destroyed in 70 AD, its purpose was crushed by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that takes us to the final component of these 70 weeks, the creation of the new covenant. In the final verse of chapter 9, Gabriel returns to the subjects of the previous verse. In verse 26, Gabriel spoke about the work of the Messiah, the atoning work of the Messiah, and judgment coming to the city and the temple. And then in verse 27, he reinforces the work of the Messiah, I believe, and the judgment of the temple. This type of repetition is typical rhetorical device among the prophets. So, verse 27 begins, And he, the prince of verse 26, I believe Jesus, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, or the middle of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. I believe the strong covenant is the new covenant that was described in verse 24 always going to the immediate context if we can. The many refers to the sinners for whom Jesus dies. The one week is not a limited time frame, but refers to the 70th seven that brings ultimate jubilee. This describes the results of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And during that, that, or in the middle of that one week, Jesus put an end to sacrifice and offerings, which was accomplished by his death on the cross. Remember, the curtain was torn, top to bottom, no more. In his final moment before death on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. The old covenant and its temple are obsolete. The new covenant has come. Gabriel then speaks once again of the temple's destruction. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, that's tough. The place of abominations would be the second temple destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. The one who makes desolate may be, finally, Titus, the Roman general who led the destruction of the temple, but... But God is behind all authority. God had decreed judgment for the desolator as well, ensuring that the wicked are brought to account. If you look at Leviticus chapter 26, which 
follows right after Leviticus 25, coincidentally. Uh, the uh, 25 is about the year of Jubilee, the, 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 the sevens. In chapter 26, it speaks of punishment, the punishment Israel will receive for their disobedience. You'll see that if it is God who will make the land, the city, the sanctuary desolate. God will make it desolate. And I believe the judgment that came upon Israel in 70 AD through the Roman Titus was the judgment of God for the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Okay, let me conclude with a final maybe twist, leading to our ultimate hope. As I hinted before, this final week is not a limited time frame. I don't believe it's a limited time frame, but the ultimate fulfillment of Jubilee. Therefore, we continue to live in this final week. What I mean is the prophecy may have been pointing to a specific events, but what was accomplished by those events events, the coming of the anointed one, the cutting off of the anointed one, the destruction of Jerusalem, the instituting of the new covenant. All of those events have taken place. But because of those events, we continue to live in the 70th week of Jubilee because we live in the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. With the coming of Jesus into the world, and especially his death and resurrection, the 70th week has dawned. In Christ, our jubilee celebration continues, and the victory over sin and transgression has been won. Therefore, there can, we can have hope in all of life's circumstances. We see the end. It, it's, it's victory. Victory through Jesus Christ. For we know that sin and death have been defeated. And our future holds eternal righteousness in the presence of the Anointed One. Rejoice in the 70th seven, a time of jubilee for those who trust in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you, by your Spirit, can give us insight and understanding. I again pray that as your word has gone forth, I'm sure there are many questions even that arise even today, Father. I pray that people would seek out answers. Seek them out in, in relationship with you. Seek them out with others. Studying your word. Looking at Ezra and Nehemiah and Leviticus and just other places that comment on, on what's happening here in Daniel, Father. But most of all, I pray that we would accept what is clear, that you, that you came that you are the anointed one, that you are the Messiah, you're the Prince of Peace, Father, and that we can receive you into our lives. Lord, that in our lives you've taken care of our sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've defeated sin and death, and you've offered us. And I pray that we would accept eternal righteousness in your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you guys want to stand with me one last time, if you're able, and we'll get into our last song, and I'll close this out with.